Section 4 of The Trial of Susan B. Anthony by Anonymous. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Argument of Mr. Selden for the Defendant Continued It may be said, in answer to the argument in favor of female suffrage, derived from the cases to which I have referred, that men not individually, but collectively, are the natural and appropriate representatives of women, and that, notwithstanding cases of individual wrong, the rights of women are, on the whole, best protected by being left to their care. It must be observed, however, that the cases which I have stated, and which are only types of thousands like them, in their cruelty and injustice, are the result of ages of legislation by these assumed protectors of women. The wrongs were less in the men than in the laws which sustained them, and which contained nothing for the protection of the women. But, passing this view, let us look at the matter historically, and on a broader field. If Chinese women were allowed an equal share with men in shaping the laws of that great empire, would they subject their female children to torture with bandaged feet through the whole period of childhood and growth, in order that they might be cripples for the residue of their lives? If Hindu women could have shaped the laws of India, would widows for ages have been burned on the funeral pyres of their deceased husbands? If Jewish women had had a voice in framing Jewish laws, would the husband, at his own pleasure, have been allowed to write his wife a bill of divorcement, and give it in her hand, and send her out of his house? Would women in Turkey or Persia have made it a heinous, if not capital, offence, for a wife to be seen abroad with her face not covered by an impenetrable veil? Would women in England, however learned, have been for ages subjected to execution, for offences for which men who could read were only subjected to burning on the hand and a few months' imprisonment? The principle which governs in these cases, or which has done so hitherto, has been at all times and everywhere the same. Those who succeed in obtaining power, no matter by what means, will, with rare exceptions, use it for their exclusive benefit. Often, perhaps generally, this is done in the honest belief that such use is for the best good of all who are affected by it. A wrong, however, to those upon whom it is inflicted, is none the less a wrong by reason of the good motives of the party by whom it is inflicted. The condition of subjection in which women have been held is the result of this principle, the result of superior strength, not of superior rights, on the part of men. Superior strength, combined with ignorance and selfishness, but not with malice. It is a relic of the barbarism in the shadow of which nations have grown up. Precisely as nations have receded from barbarism, the severity of that subjection has been relaxed. So long as merely physical power governed in the affairs of the world, the wrongs done to women were without the possibility of redress or relief. But since nations have come to be governed by laws, there is room to hope, though the process may still be a slow one, that injustice in all its forms 
or at least political injustice, may be extinguished. No injustice can be greater than to deny to any class of citizens not guilty of crime all share in the political power of a state, that is, all share in the choice of rulers and in the making and administration of the laws. Persons to which such a share is denied are essentially slaves, because they hold their rights, if they can be said to have any, subject to the will of those who hold the political power. For this reason it has been found necessary to give the ballot to the emancipated slaves. Until this was done, their emancipation was far from complete. Without a share in the political powers of the state, no class of citizens has any security for its rights. And the history of nations, to which I briefly alluded, shows that women constitute no exception to the universality of this rule. Great errors, I think, exist in the minds of both the advocates and the opponents of this measure, in their anticipation of the immediate effects to be produced by its adoption. On the one hand, it is supposed by some that the character of women would be radically changed, that they would be unsexed, as it were, by clothing them with political rights, and that instead of modest, amiable, and graceful beings, we should have bold, noisy, and disgusting political demagogues, or something worse, if anything worse can be imagined. I think those who entertain such opinions are in error. The innate character of women is the result of God's laws, not of man's, nor can the laws of man affect that character beyond a very slight degree. Whatever rights may be given to them, and whatever duties may be charged upon them by human laws, their general character will remain unchanged. Their modesty, their delicacy, and intuitive sense of propriety will never desert them, into whatever new positions their added rights and duties may carry them. So far as women, without change of character as women, are qualified to discharge the duties of citizenship, they will discharge them, if called upon to do so, and beyond that they will not go. Nature has put barriers in the way of any excessive devotion of women to public affairs, and it is not necessary that nature's work in that respect should be supplemented by additional barriers invented by men. Such offices as women are qualified to fill will be sought by those who do not find other employment, and others they will not seek, or if they do will seek in vain. To aid in removing as far as possible the disheartening difficulties which women, dependent upon their own exertions, encounter, it is, I think, desirable that such official positions as they can fill should be thrown open to them, and that they should be given the same power that men have to aid each other by their votes. I would say, remove all legal barriers that stand in the way of their finding employment, official or unofficial, and leave them as men are left, to depend for success upon their character and their abilities. As long as men are allowed to act as milliners, with what propriety can they exclude women from the post of school commissioners, when chosen to such a position by their neighbors? To deny them such rights is to leave them in a condition of political servitude as absolute as that of the African slaves before their emancipation. This conclusion is readily to be deduced from the opinion of Chief Justice Jay, in the case of Chisholm's executors versus the State of Georgia, 
2 Dallas, page 419 to 471. Although the learned Chief Justice had, of course, no idea of any such application as I make of his opinion. The action was a sumpset by a citizen of the state of South Carolina, and the question was whether the United States Court had jurisdiction, the state of Georgia declining to appear. The Chief Justice, in the course of his opinion, after alluding to the feudal idea of the character of the sovereign in England, and giving some of the reasons why he was not subject to suit before the courts of the kingdom, says, The same feudal ideas run through all their jurisprudence, and constantly remind us of the distinction between the prince and the subject. No such ideas obtain here. At the revolution the sovereignty devolved upon the people, and they are truly the sovereigns of the country, but they are sovereigns without subjects, unless the African slaves among us may be so called, and have none to govern but themselves. The citizens of America are equal as fellow-citizens and as joint tenants in the sovereignty. Now, I beg leave to ask, in case this charge against Miss Anthony can be sustained, what equality and what sovereignty is enjoyed by the half of the citizens of these United States to which she belongs? Do they not, in that event, occupy, politically, exactly the position which the learned Chief Justice assigns to the African slaves? Are they not shown to be subjects of the other half who are the sovereigns? And is not their political subjection as absolute as was that of the African slaves? If that charge has any basis to rest upon, the learned Chief Justice was wrong. The sovereigns of this country, according to the theory of this prosecution, are not sovereigns without subjects. Though two or three millions of their subjects have lately ceased to be such, and have become free men, they still hold twenty millions of subjects in absolute political bondage. If it be said that my language is stronger than the facts warrant, I appeal to the record in this case for its justification. As deductions from what has been said, I respectfully insist, first, that upon the principles upon which our government is based, the privilege of the elective franchise cannot justly be denied to women. Second, that women need it for their protection. Third, that the welfare of both sexes will be promoted by granting it to them. Having occupied much more time than I intended, in showing the justice and propriety of the claim made by my client to the privileges of a voter, I proceed to the consideration of the present state of the law on that subject. It would not become me, however clear my own convictions may be on the subject, to assert the right of women, under our Constitution and laws as they now are, to vote at presidential and congressional elections, is free from doubt because very able men have expressed contrary opinions on that question. And so far as I am informed, there has been no authoritative adjudication upon it, or, at all events, none upon which the public mind has been content to rest as conclusive. I proceed, therefore, to offer such suggestions as occur to me, and to refer to such authorities bearing upon the question as have fallen under my observation hoping to satisfy your honor not only that my client has committed no criminal offense, 
but that she has done nothing which she had not a legal and constitutional right to do it is not claimed that under our state constitution and the laws made in pursuance of it women are authorized to vote at elections other than those of private corporations and consequently the right of miss anthony to vote at the election in question can only be established by reference to an authority superior to and sufficient to overcome the provisions of our state constitution such authority can only be found and i claim that it is found in the constitution of the united states for convenience i beg leave to bring together the various provisions of that constitution which bear more or less directly upon the question article one section two the house of representatives shall be composed of members chosen every second year by the people of the several states and the electors in each state shall have the qualifications for electors of the most numerous branch of the state legislature the same article section three the senate of the united states shall be composed of two senators from each state chosen by the legislature thereof for six years and each senator shall have one vote article two section one each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors equal to the whole number of senators and representatives to which the state may be entitled in the congress article four section two the citizens of each state shall be entitled to all the privileges and immunities of citizens in the several states same article section four the united states shall guarantee to every state in the union a republican form of government thirteenth amendment december eighteenth eighteen sixty five one neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for a crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the united states or any place subject to their jurisdiction two congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation fourteenth amendment july twenty eighth eighteen sixty eight section one all persons born or naturalized in the united states and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the united states and of the state wherein they reside no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the united states nor shall any state deprive any person of life liberty or property without due process of law nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws section two representatives shall be apportioned among the several states according to their respective numbers counting the whole number of persons in each state excluding indians not taxed but when the right to vote at any election for the choice of electors for president and vice-president of the united states representatives in congress the executive and judicial officers of a state or the members of the legislature thereof 
is denied to any of the male inhabitants of such state being twenty-one years of age and citizens of the united states or in any way abridged except for participation in rebellion or other crime the basis of representation therein shall be reduced in the proportion which the number of such male citizens shall bear to the whole number of male citizens twenty-one years of age in such a state section five the congress shall have power to enforce by appropriate legislation the provisions of this article fifteenth amendment section one the right of citizens of the united states to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the united states or by any state on account of race color or previous condition of servitude section two the Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. By reference to the provisions of the original Constitution, here recited, it appears that prior to the thirteenth, if not until the fourteenth amendment, the whole power over the elective franchise, even in the choice of federal officers, rested with the states the constitution contains no definition of the term citizen either of the united states or of the several states but contents itself with the provision that the citizens of each state shall be entitled to all the privileges and immunities of citizens of the several states the states were thus left free to place such restrictions and limitations upon the privileges and immunities of citizens as they saw fit so far as is consistent with a republican form of government subject only to the condition that no state could place restrictions upon the privileges or immunities of the citizens of any other state which would not be applicable to its own citizens under like circumstances it will be seen therefore that the whole subject as to what should constitute the privileges and immunities of the citizen being left to the states no question such as we now present could have arisen under the original constitution of the united states but now by the fourteenth amendment the united states have not only declared what constitutes citizenship both in the united states and in the several states securing the rights of citizens to all persons born or naturalized in the united states but have absolutely prohibited the states from making or enforcing any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the united states by virtue of this provision i insist that the act of miss anthony in voting was lawful it has never since the adoption of the fourteenth amendment been questioned and cannot be questioned that women as well as men are included in the terms of its first section nor that the same privileges and immunities of citizens are equally secured to both what then are the privileges and immunities of citizens of the united states which are secured against such abridgment by this section i claim that these terms not only include the right of voting for public officers but that they include that right as preeminently the most important of all the privileges and immunities to which the section refers among these privileges and immunities may doubtless be classed the right to life and liberty 
to the acquisition and enjoyment of property and to the free pursuit of one's own welfare so far as such pursuit does not interfere with the rights and welfare of others but what security has any one for the enjoyment of these rights when denied any voice in the making of the laws or in the choice of those who make and those who administer them the possession of this voice in the making and administration of the laws this political right is what gives security and value to the other rights which are merely personal not political a person deprived of political rights is essentially a slave because he holds his personal rights subject to the will of those who possess the political power this principle constitutes the very cornerstone of our government indeed of all republican government upon that basis our separation from great britain was justified taxation without representation is tyranny this famous aphorism of james otis although sufficient for the occasion when it was put forth expresses but a fragment of the principle because government can be oppressive through means of many appliances besides that of taxation the true principle is that all government over persons deprived of any voice in such government is tyranny that is the principle of the declaration of independence we were slow in allowing its application to the african race and have been still slower in allowing its application to women but it has been done by the fourteenth amendment rightly construed by a definition of citizenship which includes women as well as men and in the declaration that the privileges and immunities of citizens shall not be abridged if there is any privilege of the citizen which is paramount to all others it is the right of suffrage and in a constitutional provision designed to secure the most valuable rights of the citizen the declaration that the privileges and immunities of the citizen shall not be abridged must as i conceive be held to secure that right before all others it is obvious when the entire language of the section is examined not only that this declaration was designed to secure to the citizen this political right but that such was its principle if not its sole object those provisions of the section which follow it being devoted to securing the personal rights of life liberty property and the equal protection of the laws the clause on which we rely to wit no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the united states might be stricken out of the section and the residue would secure to the citizen every right which is now secured excepting the political rights of voting and holding office if the clause in question does not secure those political rights it is entirely nugatory and might as well have been omitted End of section 4